Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. We will make you Khan. You shall ride at our head against our foes. We will throw ourselves like lightning on your enemies. We will bring you their finest women and girls, their rich tents like palaces. Those were the chieftains of the Mongols speaking what was to. Was that? Is that a Mongolian accent? Yeah. Have you not been to Mongolia, Tom? <laughs> I haven't. No. I had no idea. That's what they said. So like. you're not familiar. Uh, with the Mongolian accent, as I am. I mean, I haven't been to Mongolia, but, you know, I've, I've done it on Duolingo. Um, so. Okay, very impressive. <laughs> yeah. So, so Ali, as you will recognise, that was a really quite sensitive and, and very appropriate um, rendition. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was in any way orientalising. Oh, yeah, <laughs> no, I was convinced. Gonna, yeah, of the Mongol chieftains yeah. um, speaking to Genghis Khan or, or, or Chinggis Khan Chinggis. when he be- yeah when he becomes... Um, <laughs> It's when like he becomes we're in Ulan Batar. It is. It is when he becomes their paramount leader. <laughs> so, uh, welcome back to our second episode on Genghis Khan. We are, of course, uh, joined again by Ali Ansari. So, Ali, to kick off, a question from Mark Woodhouse. Mm-hmm. What on earth was Genghis Khan trying to achieve? What on earth was Genghis Khan trying to achieve? Yeah. I think basically his uh, his destiny was really to. Uh, I mean, this is the interesting thing. So, if you consider his title to be. Lord of all those who dwelt and felt tents. His achieve, his his ambition really was to bring all the nomads under his control, and then China, which was normally their number one target, was the place you plunder to keep everyone happy and bring the. Food. It's not really a question of immediately of conquest, although uh, what you do see with Genghis Khan is this uh, desire for um, ultimately to, to to take over these areas. But the standard, you know, the standard nomad warlord modus operandi is you know you bring all these tribal groups together um and then you go and plunder the chinese i mean that's basically you know, mm-hmm. that's that's what you do and um i think i mean were his ambitions obviously you know in retrospect and with a benefit of hindsight it was to be ruler of the world um i think at the time it's basically this notion if you accept that title that he would be ruler of all those on the plains on the steps and then obviously china is the place you go and sort of have but- a bit of fun so essentially, he's become paramount leader and yeah. he needs to keep his men happy. Yes, he needs and to you keep them happy by providing them with plunder. Mm. So initially, his aim is just to get plunder. But yes. does he find he's so good at the whole conquering thing that his horizons start to expand? I, I think there's, a, there's definitely to, an to element grow. of that. Yeah, there's definitely an element of that where, you know, you sort of feel, goodness, this is actually turning out rather well. Uh, and, you know, let's keep going. So, I mean, initially, you know, what he does is he attacks those parts of the Chinese imperium that are basically the closest to the nomadic, you know, the, the northern Chinese kingdoms. Uh, and then he moves uh, to the, uh, if I've got the name right, I think the, the Qin uh, dynasty in the north where you have um, where, where modern Peking and other places are. Um, and that's his focus. So he, he's, he's basically declared Genghis Khan in 1206. And, you know, for the next 14 years or so, his focus is on China. I mean, that, that, right. that's what he's up to. So um, there are two great kingdoms, aren't there? There's yeah. the, the Tanguts, the Western Zizi. Zizi, yeah. Um, basically, he kind of reduces them to a tributary status. Is that yeah, right? yeah. And then the Qin, uh, who basically he's going after. You know, But as, as I said, the interesting thing is he has less success initially in reducing the cities because it's quite difficult yeah. for them. You know, they're not as competent at dealing with, you know. But the Qin, the Qin, 
the chin, the chin, the chin emperor. So the Tanguts are being attacked by the Mongols by yeah. Genghis Khan. Yeah. And they send a messenger to the Jin saying, please, yeah. would you come and help us? Yeah. Um, and they reply, it works to our benefit when our enemies attack each other. How yeah. does it endanger us? Yeah, exactly. Which yeah, yeah. as a kind of geopolitical judgment is not the best. Because well, this, this is the thing. Of course, it, in previous times, it would have worked. I mean, you know, the idea is, in, you know, we'll, we'll support whichever, you know, we'll, we'll create dissension. Uh, what they miscalculate, of course, in this case, is that Genghis Khan is, is of a different caliber of leader. So, um, uh, you know, yes, that's a, that, that's a miscalculation, I think, on, on their part on this occasion. But the question then is, so uh, as Tom, Tom said, you know, he needs to deliver plunder and loot for his, yeah. for his men, basically. It's a way yeah. of keeping them together. It's a way of keeping his own popularity. But do you think there's a, at, at this stage, there's anything, you know, you said it was 14 years. Is there any, any moment where he has thought, you know what, actually, I could go, I could go further. And I could become an empire builder rather than just an empire looter. Or do you think he was I always... I think he does. No, I think he does. I think as he finds his success in northern China, I mean, I think he does become, you know, his idea of being a, an empire builder is certainly there. Now, one one of the things, you know, one of the debates that you have, and it's in the secret history and it's in the, uh, the Persian histories, is this idea of Genghis Khan as a lawgiver, you know, yeah. this idea of the great Yasser of Genghis Khan. Of course, there's huge debate among historians about whether this existed. I mean, nobody knows whether Genghis Khan had a Yasser, but it's this idea that certainly in retrospect, they they apply this to him. He's a great lawgiver and it's part of the way in which his image has slightly been uh, right. softened. Uh, but there's no actual evidence actually that this great law code existed during his lifetime. So that, again, it, it's this sort of idea of whether he, he had a plan or whether it was, oh, this is going rather well. So I yeah. will now have a plan, you know. But so Ali, you say, is this about the script as well? Because he devises a script, doesn't he? Well, we goes well again. It's 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 a matter of you know the secret history is written in a sort of Uyghur Uyghur script. Uh, much to the much, I have to say to the the absolute contempt of Persian historians who think this is the utmost act of vulgarity. I'm sorry to say, but but I mean the, the, this script. It, so it derives ultimately for, via the Uyghurs from the Sogdians from Aramaic to ultimately Crikey. back to Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's wow. kind of an amazing. An amazing yeah. thought that this script in Mongolia comes all the way from, you know, has this incredibly kind of lengthy genealogy. But are you saying that the stories that Genghis Khan, recognizing that he needs lords and that laws will require um, a script, yeah. that this is not true? This is not actually true. It's, it's a matter of some content. I mean, people say there's no evidence of, of it actually existing at the time. I mean, the, 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 this is the problem. It, it's it's part of the, I suppose, the rehab, rehabilitation is the wrong term. It, yeah. But, you know, you're trying to, you're, you're almost trying to, turn Genghis Khan into some sort of enlightened despot. Yeah. He's yeah. a lawgiver. So, so I I reviewed this book called Fake History last year. Right. In which they referred to him throughout as Khan. And, oh, um, dear. <laughs> and, oh dear. And uh, in that it basically said it said that Genghis we'd all got completely the wrong idea about Khan because he was um he was very enlightened. He was, he was a liberal. Actually, I, I used the words I said it was very inclusive and diverse and all that kind yeah, of yeah. thing. So basically made it made him sound like, I don't know, um Sir Ed Davy. The leader of the liberal Democrats. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, a lot of these, I mean, we, we've had these discussions before, you know, a lot of this is sort of transplanting our modern notions of, of, of what it means to be a political leader back into the, you know. And who is leader. doing that? Who's, do, who's doing this? Is it the Chinese? Is it the Mongolians? Is it well, I think the Mongolian, you know, Western since, academics? I mean, ever since the Mongolian, you know, ever since, you know, uh, that was quite interesting. I mean, I when I studied this back at university, of course, it was, it was, um, 
well, I hesitate to say this now, reveal all sorts of, but, you know, before the fall of the Iron Curtain. So, you know, it was before Mongolia really sort of came out into the light. And of course, then, you know, what the Mongolians did is they wanted to sort of like emphasize just what a wonderful character Genghis Khan was. He's the father of the nation, you see. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get this sort of reinvention of him, really. And um, a lot of protests, obviously, from people saying, you know, how dare you, you know, criticize him for being... Uh, you know, somewhat more brutal, or perhaps, you know, uh, he's, you know, he was actually a very, very uh, sort of decent chap. Well, I mean, the problem with that is it's completely ahistorical. That's just not how he would have basically seen it. I don't think he clearly was a much more sophisticated political operator than many of his rivals. Otherwise, he wouldn't have succeeded the way he did. But I don't think he had any qualms about... Um, He'd boil you if yeah, you had to. Well, or massacring. Well, we, we know this, don't we? Because I think that this is authentic that he i mean he, he's reduced the tangots to uh, submission yeah and he does end up taking beijing yeah after eventually. kind of a lengthy process and ambassadors come from the persian world yeah and they visit what had been beijing and they say that the soil is greasy with human fat that's right and that some of their train fall sick because there are so many rotting bodies and that sense of great piles of the dead littering what had originally been a city. I mean, presumably not a, invented from nothing. There well, I mean, that, some that, basis of fact yeah. for this. I mean, that's the interesting. If you look at the, and it is largely you take it from many of the Persian historians that are writing at the time. I mean, it's a great, you know, from a historical point of view, uh, going back to our previous encounter, you know, this is the great flourishing of Persian historians, actually. I mean, it's, it's sort of like a great um, crisis and they all have to write something and say, how the hell did this happen? But it's quite clear from the accounts that they're truly shocked at the scale of the violence. I mean, they are shocked. Now, yeah. obviously they exaggerate you know, they're talking about millions and millions of people being massacred and this sort of thing. And that, obviously that's, you know, people will dismiss that in terms of, you know, how realistic is that for Central Asian cities and others in, in Khorasan. But I think it's a good evocation of how distressed they were, you know, about the scale of yeah. the violence. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, the other thing is, uh, it is quite true that Mongol violence was not indiscriminate in the sense that if you submitted, it was fine, you know. Yeah. But if you didn't submit, it was pretty indiscriminate. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. So, it, and, 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 you know, there was no compromise on this. So the fact that these medieval historians, if I can put it that way, are themselves horrified at the scale. And, you know, Tom's quote is absolutely right. I actually read, I think it was one of the Central Asia, I mean, actually in Khorasan, where they talk about, you know, sludging through what they thought was, well, actually what they thought was something else, you know, and then it's actually the sort of molding, you know, the bones that have been sort of basically, uh, uh, effectively got into the mulch effect you know it's it's really quite grotesque the way they describe yeah. it mm. what they've encountered um it's uh you know it it, it clearly expresses a um a something that even for their time they found quite shocking the uh the the, the chin retreat and basically yeah. from, from so they've come from they've come from manchuria which yeah. is why their capital is beijing they go down to kaifeng that's yeah. where it becomes yeah. their capital the song dynasty in the south of china that they're as yet untouched yeah that's for um, the next generation and at this point <laughs> at this point Genghis sends ambassadors westwards he does does he not to oh, try and Road. kind of negotiate uh trading agreements with well he sends merchants first and the merchants okay. are basically roughly treated 
And so, so talk us through that. Tell us a bit about the the because there's a big state, isn't there? Yeah, the Khwarazm the Khwarazm Shahs are basically a successor, essentially to the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Seljuks. It's 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 basically an Iranian dynasty, if I can put it that way. And the Khwarazm Shah, Ali. yeah, an Iran, <laughs> and uh, it's an Iranian dynasty, but not a very good one. It has to be said. Now th- there are two characters in this. There's Muhammad Shah, who's actually the king. There's his son, who's very interesting, Jalal al-Din. And Jalal al-Din is actually portrayed quite heroically in the in the uh, in the, in the accounts, and apparently Genghis Khan quite respects him because he fights. I mean, he, he he fights when his father his father basically runs. I mean, he runs almost immediately. But essentially, what happens? These merchants come in. I think a local governor says, "You know, you lot are old spies." You know, and, and basically, I think executes quite a few of them anyway. This is obviously a no no. I mean, it's very possible they were spies. I mean, this is the other thing. I mean, it, it's a matter of debate. Was Genghis Khan simply going to investigate trade routes? Possibly, but you know, his his modus operandi was somewhat different. <laughs> the Liz um, Truss. <laughs> I, know, you know, well, I mean, you know, again, I don't want to be cynical about it, but at the end of the day, you know, he he, he probably was also going to use information. But obviously, the the reaction of the horrors and was ex- and their governors was extremely reckless. They then sent ambassadors, one, two uh, Mongol ambassadors, and a Muslim. Um, I think it's the Muslim one who's actually executed because they say, you know, what the hell are you doing? You know, the Mongol embassy. Whatever. And they're sent back again. And this now, th- this is where you get the concept of the storm from the east, by the way, because what Genghis Khan then does around 1219, I think it is. Um, he then organizes the largest army he'd ever had actually under his control. It's about 100,000. So 10 two months, 100,000 including obviously heavy cavalry, the light cavalry, the whole works. I mean, we, we have this image of the Mongol army being all archers, and they're not. Quite a lot of them are heavily armoured, you know, the uh, uh, warriors on horseback. So and they're a, bringing all the siege engines too that they've got. Now, now they're bringing stuff in, yeah. And these they'll pick up more. Are, not, are presumably not all Mongols. No, not at all, no. I mean, it's obviously picked up all sorts of other, you know, all the, the basic tribal confederacy, the, the imperial expansion brings in. So I think actually Mongols proper are probably a minority. So Chinese, um, presumably? Uh, not so much. I'm not sure about China. There would be some siege. Well, he has there a Chinese advisor, doesn't he? He, he does. Has, he has the famous Chinese advisor. Who, he does have. Who, I mean, he d- they do have siege, you know. I can't remember his name. He's Longbeard, I think he's called. They all have these great names, actually. So this invasion of Central Asia and then Khorasan is probably the most devastating. I mean, it, it, it does an enormous amount of damage. And it is, a, it is, in effect, a punitive raid on a grand scale. I mean, it's it's... And and uh, there's a wonderful account, when I say wonderful account, when he takes Bukhara, he initially going into center. So actually, let me rein back a bit there. So the Khwarezm Shah, having insulted Genghis Khan to this sort of extent, then decides that it's not worth fighting him in battle because it's a bit worrying. So he retreats into his cities and his castles and so on and so forth. Bad idea. I mean, very bad idea. He's stuck in his and basically flees. His son actually does a bit of fighting, but eventually is defeated and flees to India, actually. But it's and, and does so in a very dramatic way. But what uh, Genghis Khan does when he takes Bukhara, there's a famous account of him in Javani in particular, where he goes up to the minaret in, uh, in, in Bukhara, having taken it. And he has this account where he says, um, you know, you basically it's, it's the Muslim justification. He says, you have sinned. You know, your people have sinned. How do I know you've sinned? Because I'm here, basically, yeah. and I'm your punishment. And, and if Ali, you hadn't to... sinned, I wouldn't be here, basically. So he's sort of the... retrospective justification of what's going on. And the significant thing about that anecdote about Bukhara is mm. that 
he's actually gone into the city. Yes, which implies that normally he he doesn't normally go into city. I mean, again, it's a slightly apocryphal story in the sense that some people say, did he, the the idea that he would have gone up and made that statement seems to be really uh, an embellishment of later, basically Persian historians saying, how do we explain this complete catastrophe that has befallen us? It must be because we've all sinned. One other thing uh, that I want to ask about is if it's apocryphal. So it is said that when he takes some of these places, Otra, for example, yeah, yeah. he kills all the civilians, yeah. um, or a lot of them. The rest of them are sold into slavery. Um, people are executed by having silver, melted silver, poured into their ears and eyes and, and things like that. So are these stories exaggerated, or are they, or do you think there's some truth in them? Well, I think, the, I think some of them are exact. I mean, some of them are embellished to make them sound more dramatic, but some of them are... Uh, so the, the the two cities I think that really suffer, I mean, suffer very badly, are actually it's Khorasan that basically gets the brunt of this. And what Genghis Khan does, he sends his son, I think his younger son Tolui, to deal with Khorasan. Uh, and you know, arguably, the, the children of the conqueror are even less. You know, he didn't have a troubled upbringing really, so uh, he's he's less compassionate. Um, Marav is one of the cities which I understand. I mean, again, it depends how big you think these cities were in sort of 1220 or 1221. Uh, But assuming, for instance, that a lot of people from the hinterland would have gone into the city for protection, you can imagine the population of these cities had been sort of basically ballooned up. Marif was basically flattened. I mean, that, 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 in in one of the interesting, I mean, even archaeologists today going there, they realise that Marif never recovers. I mean, it never mm. recovers from mm. it. They, not only do they, they flatten it, they execute everyone. And normally what they do, and, and this is also quite, again, the shocking thing in a sense, is after the defeat of the city, um, there and Nishapur was the other one, uh, they basically allocate to every Mongol warrior gets 400 people to execute. I mean, that's basically what they do. So like sheep? Yeah, they bring them out and they say, right, you know, you're all going to get 400. They keep, I think in one case, they kept, you know, 400 artisans that they were going to keep for various and, and actors, obviously, and, and other things for their <laughs> for their enjoyment and, and benefit. But everyone else is basically obliterated. And, and Nishapur... Is that true? Yeah, I mean, the evidence is, yeah. I mean, the archaeological evidence also tends to. So, are we, t- are we, are we talking millions? Because that's how that's what people talk about. Well, people that talk millions about, I, are killed. I don't think I don't think you can realistically say that you know a million people are killed in a single city. I mean, I don't know about China. The population of China is obviously vaster than what you're going to find here. These are very big cities, though, aren't they? I mean, this is the thing. So, a lot of our listeners, sort of Anglo-American listeners, yeah, yeah. will be like, "Well, this is the back of beyond." But but no, this no, is these Central are big Asia. cities for the for these the, are the, the former theory. these are what are now the former Soviet republics of Central yeah, Asia, yeah, so Turkmenistan, yeah. Uzbekistan, yeah, and so yeah, on, yeah. and they are incredibly sophisticated, rich, um, successful places. I mean, I, I, I would certainly put the population at several hundred thousand. I mean, in in some of these cases, so particularly if you think of the hinterland and all the people rushing okay, into so, the city. So, so if you're saying that they kill everybody apart from four hundred artisans, I mean, they they're, they're literally killing. I don't know, 400,000 people? It seems to me, I mean, again, you know, let's say uh, certainly, and I mean, we're only talking about two cities here, by the way, because most of the other cities then submit. Surrender. And also, Ali, the other famous thing is the pyramids of skulls. Yeah. Well, again, they say that, that they separate the women, the female and the male skulls, and they build them up. And the children. To be honest, the pyramid of skulls is more something attributed to Tamerlane. Yeah, it's right, and, right. and that's when Tamerlane, if for a separate podcast, like, Tamerlane was basically trying to emulate Genghis Khan. Yeah, yeah. So, right. so, he was oasis to <laughs> Genghis's Beatles. You know, so he was trying to go one better. I mean, um, one of our listeners, uh, Gavin Griffith, said uh, 
if he killed as many people as the history books say, where are all the skeletons? And I think some historians have said this, haven't they? That yeah, they, yeah. they expect more mass graves. They would expect some sort of archaeological evidence of a slaughter on this scale. And that it may have been embellished, you know, to, but I mean, everyone, it's in everyone's yeah. interest to embellish this in a way. It's in, it's in opposing the sort of millions and, and millions is the millions, you know, when people talk, I mean, I've heard something as a 40 million or something. I mean, I think that's excessive. I think it's entirely, you know, uh, possible during the duration, certainly of the Mongol empire that, you know, four to 5 million people would have been slaughtered in various campaigns. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's not impossible. If you're talking about these cities, let's say for a conservative estimate for Marv, would it be 200,000, 250,000. Neshapur was a major city at the time. It has never recovered. I mean, it's never recovered. And of course, people say, well, you know, where are the massacres? I mean, I'm not saying there's been a huge amount of archaeological work done on Neshapur or Marv. There's been more, but not enough really to see what's going on. And obviously, uh, but Neshapur, you know, the, 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 the story with Neshapur is that uh, I think Genghis Khan's son-in-law is accidentally killed. <laughs> you know, Someone on the battlements fires an arrow and the son-in-law of Genghis Khan is killed. Mm. And therefore, they say to his widow, yeah. you know, what is your retribution? She says, I want the place, everyone dead. And it's not just everyone. It's dogs, cats, everything, everything is slaughtered. And, and the Romans did. So that, you know, so again, I wouldn't want to, you know, I think people, there's an attempt to, I suppose, re, you know, revise the, the scale of the Mongol devastation. Um, I wouldn't. I mean, I, yeah. I think certainly even people at the time were shocked. Uh, but figures of one or two million are obviously an exaggeration. I don't think these cities were one or two million. I mean, that, that's too much. Okay, let's take a, a quick break there and we will see you back after the ads. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. So, Ali, 
I mean, the whole thing is, is that, that when insults are done, yeah. then retribution is yeah, swift. Yeah. So at Merv, isn't it right that they actually capture some of the Mongols and yeah. parade them through the streets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's terribly it's, bad. Yeah. And so the lesson, which then and starts insult, to kind of, yeah, yeah starts to ripple southwards yeah. to... Um, to the Islamic Empire, to, uh, to to the Abbasid Empire, and westwards towards um, Rus, and and then ultimately Latin Europe, is that you surrender, yeah, or everything. Well, that's what the city of Herat does. So the city of Herat hears what happens to Nishapur and immediately submits, and it's fine. But you know the the other thing that they have, and this is goes to Tom's point, of course, is that there's a sort of a you know they sort of think. It's a wave of tribal marauders. They come in, they wreaked havoc, and they'll bugger off. And once we bugger off, we can sort of get back to normal. The, what, the, what on occasion happens, and again, it's in the historical record, is that what they do is they send parties back just to check that they got everyone. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is, you know, and, and there are some horrendous cases of, you know, people coming out of their sort of caves and stuff saying, oh, it's all all right now where well, they can sort of, and then suddenly a party of, you know, Mongol reconnaissance force comes out and say, ah, you know, and basically, you know, finish off what what's left. But it's interesting at this early stage, it is a massive punitive raid, but it's so destructive, actually, that nothing really replaces it. So that when ultimately successors of Genghis Khan come in to establish government, you know, they 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 basically able to move in a lot more more easily. There's nothing that really replaces the uh, you know the, the dynasty that was was defeated. And at this stage, so to I know we said we wouldn't talk about him, but let's bring back the parallel with Alexander. Okay. So so Alexander keeps going and going and going, and he's obviously addicted just in to yeah, yeah. some extent to the thrill of conquest and you know the expectation of capturing cities and all that. Um, why does Temujin? Why does Genghis Khan keep going? Why doesn't I mean? There's no, there's no, at no point does he think, okay, this is my empire now. You know, ru- running it is going to be really interesting, building waterworks mm. and, and and organizing tariffs and taxes. I mean, obviously, he doesn't think that, and he just keeps going. Do you think there's, there was ever a possibility that he might have stopped? Well, the interesting thing here, and you, 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 is that he doesn't. I mean, he's actually quite keen to get back to China. I mean, that's what, that's what yeah. he really wants to target. But one of the things that happens here, which is for me one of the most astonishing. Uh, bits of military history that you'll ever that you'll ever see is that he has this lieutenant, lieutenant being the wrong word really, but anyway, his deputy, yeah. let's say, called Sobodai, one of my favourite names ever, I have to say. Uh, Sobodai is one of his sort of chief lieutenants who he sends off, who he basically says, "Let me do a reconnaissance in force uh, and see what the hell is out there further west." Yeah, and he lets him go. They take thirty thousand warriors. They go. Basically, the, the argument is to find out where this Khwarezm Shah is hiding. So they go through the Caspian and whatever. But he then takes essentially, and, and interestingly enough, we were talking about this earlier, Gibbon is the one who basically says it's one of the most extraordinary bits of military uh, military achievement in history. Sobodai takes 30,000 men, goes careering around the southern Caspian, up through the Caucasus, basically beats everything that he sees, straight up into Kievan Rus, defeats them there although it's it's not entirely you know it's not entirely one side he does ultimately end up defeating them but he does it through guile because with 30,000 men you're not going to do a huge amount but basically does this entire tour after three years and then joins the main Mongol force returning back to Mongolia and China almost on cue I mean it's and it's an extraordinary reconnaissance and force and if I may say so it's probably the you know, the Mongols are the only peoples to have successfully invaded Russia in winter. And they do that because they use the rivers, the frozen rivers as roads. And Ali, is that when they, they capture the various princes of Muscovy and 
uh, not yet. No, at this time they haven't. I mean, that they don't even go to Kiev. That's later. That's under Ogadai. And and so at this it's stage, not, it's this under is Ogadai when they have the feast and they crush them to death. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a, yeah. That, and Sobodai does that too. I mean, Sobodai. So this is basically his. Let's see what's out here. Yeah, but that, but, because that's another because that story that they uh, listeners to the uh, the ten worst parties in history <laughs> may remember that uh, the Abbasids treated the Umayyads like this, yeah, yeah. and just like Genghis Khan treated um, Jemuka, that you're not allowed to spill the blood of yeah, yeah. someone of royal blood. Yeah, yeah. So they they capture these princes, lay them out as a foundation, and then build a huge great structure and have a feast on top of them, yeah, and right. they kind of get crushed to death. So fun times, Mr. Yeah. Slav the Third of Kiev. That's how he. That's how he. He meets his end, isn't it? He's he's crushed under the dining table. But they've. I mean, they've got to. They've got to Samara in Russia. They've got to Crimea on this expedition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for a sort of scouting expedition, it's extraordinary. It's it is extraordinary. extraordinary. I mean, it, it's it's you know, I I for me, it's it's astonishing. They capture the um the the Genoese trading post, don't they? Yeah, I think they, they get in there. But, I mean, obviously, it's it's a reconnaissance. He doesn't stay. But the, but the point is, is that it, for me, what's remarkable about it, I mean, let's think about it. We're talking about the 1220s. He's still able somehow to do this and to j- rejoin the main Mongol force almost on cue. I mean, th- th- this is what's remarkable about it. It's not that he gets yeah. lost and, you know, he goes back, joins the Mongol army, and then they go back, obviously, to finish off to do what they're going to do in China. And that's when, obviously, uh, some of the significant conquests are taken, taking place. But Sopadai is a, is an extraordinary figure. And of course, later on under Ogadai is the, is the leader of the assault on, uh, on, uh, on Europe. Right. Well, we'll, we'll do that in a, a later episode, perhaps. But as you said, they go back to China. Basically, Genghis's focus is on China, but but particularly on um, on the poor old Tanguts. Well, they've who have what have they done? Have they had a rebellion? The Tanguts. They've had a rebellion, and it's such a stupid thing to do. So John Mann, who wrote a very good book on on Genghis Khan, said of of the way that that uh, Genghis Khan treated the Tanguts. So basically, he he sweeps in. I mean, he annihilates them all. The emperor goes to to beg for forgiveness. He gets killed. Everybody gets killed. That. And he says that there is a case to be made that this was the first ever recorded example of attempted genocide. It was certainly very successful ethnocide. Ali, I don't know what you make of that. Um, I mean, there are certainly cases uh, and there have been arguments that there have been a number of uh, peoples who they they, they sought to, you know, effectively eliminate. I'm not as I'm not as keen as applying some of these modern terms anyway to to, to this period. But uh, on the other hand, I'm also not going to soften. I think what was going on. I mean, this was you know because the tankers do vanish, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I mean no, there's I mean there's I mean, they... all places that do essentially vanish. And you know, one of the arguments about the cities and their attitude to cities is as nomads, they had no particular sentimentality about cities and actually thought them, as I said, as as, as dens of iniquity. So you know, in that they were sort of cleaning up. Uh, and, you know, uh, similarly in terms of people who might have betrayed them, or whatever. By this stage, of course, Tom, I mean, you know, the view of themselves as destined to rule the world would have been fairly well established. So anyone mm-hmm. rebelling, you know. Well, that raises a really interesting question, Ali, because if we just, if you, if we just sort of step back and think about yeah. the map, they've, they've, they've taken most of China or lots of China. They've, Northern, they've, yeah. They've got, um, a dominion that goes all the way, you know, through Afghanistan, through Central Asia. They've they've been to Crimea, they've been to Kiev, they've been up into into Russia on the Volga. It, that, but is that an empire? I mean, are there any governing structures? Are there any systems of tribute and taxation? Are there the the communications links and all that that we would regard as 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 marking an empire, or have they just been and gone? Well, Dominic, um, actually, that very question has been mm. asked by Eric the Red Wang. What a, oh, what a wise great person name. he is! The a Red great Wang. name. Um, and he says Genghis Khan rapidly conquered a huge swathe of Eurasia. Can we properly call his holdings an empire? 
I think at this stage, it, it, it's a tribal confederacy. Um, and there are large parts of it that remain that really throughout, even when you get to, you know, Kublai Khan and, and, and the others. It does develop. I mean, they do bring in administrators to run the thing for them, basically Persian and Chinese. I mean, that's that's right. basically where the administrators come. But it is it is a quintessential example of, of small government in practice, it has to be said. I mean, that you do not have a bureaucracy in the sense that we would understand it, except out, you know, out certainly outside uh, the Chinese and Persian sort of um, uh, conquests. Uh, but it is it is essentially run through the family and the extended family and the blood brothers and others. And and that's how it's run. And particularly, you know, your favorite, Dom, the Golden Horde, and obviously the Jagatai. Yeah, oh, I was like, I like if I have a horde, I'd, I'd have a Golden Horde. It's it's basically, you know, those are tribal confederacies of the very. So, it, it, but it is. I, I think you can describe it as an empire. So, in other I words, think at this stage, it's 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 in the process of formation. I think is the way to look at it. But but if you're a, if you're living in the empire, so in yeah. other words, when I go to any website or open any book about Genghis Khan, there was always a map. Yeah. This is the Mongol Empire at the time of his death in, death in 1227. Yeah. And it's sort of all shaded. Yeah. Is that an accurate that's that that you think that's a fairly accurate reflection. So the people living in a given town in that place sort of said that the overlords now I mean they may never have seen them yeah. but they will know the overlords now are these fellows from Mongolia. Well, it depends on you know what the Mongols did, obviously, is they. The, so at the death of Genghis Khan in 1227, it's basically the area we're talking about is still essentially the Eurasian steppe, right? So that's the yeah. key thing, isn't yeah. it? I mean, so they're not, you know, they're not actually into Persia proper. They're not into southern China. Um, obviously, if you're a peasant or whatever, I mean, perhaps the relationship you have is no different because you're still paying your taxes to your local lord. The fact is, your local lord is then going upwards, and, and eventually, who's who's being. Uh, getting the benefit of that labor is 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 obviously a mongol warlord of some sort yeah so there's a mongol warlord in the ladder yeah. on the ladder at the top i think i think you know by the time that the histories are being written so when Giovanni writes his history uh and i think he finishes it in 1260 he he spent a decade writing it and the fact that he goes to karakorum to investigate the secret history and to write the history of the Mongols, the fact that he can go from Persia to Mongolia without being hassled, you know, <laughs> without being harassed, yeah. Yeah. shows that this is a, you know. So, so I mean, Ali, if you put this in the broadest historical sweep, essentially the whole history of Eurasia, you could say, has been about the tension between settled empires yes. Yes. and nomads beyond yes. the limits of those empires. That those are the two That's ways the in which humans you know, since what the Iron Age have been able to live since the domestication of the horse um, so that people in the steppes can go vast distances. And when, when did Genghis Khan dies, he's, mm. he's conquered Northern China, That's right. but Southern China, Song China remains proof against him. Um, India remains proof, Persia, um, the Abbasid empire and Latin Europe uh, and, and the Ottoman and the, um, the Orthodox world. Yeah. The, the question that the Mongols face when Genghis Khan dies is can they go beyond just being a steppe empire and actually absorb these very, very ancient settled cities? Uh, And that of course is a a question that we'll, we'll leave for another episode, but not to give too much away. Yeah, they do. (laughs) (laughs) And what, what it is, I mean, you know, what it is actually is a testament to Genghis Khan's charisma. I mean, it's, it's it, because, you know, what Dominic was saying earlier, are there sort of imperial structures of government? There aren't really, you know, I mean, there isn't. I mean, there's a sort of a, a network. Uh, but what it is, is a testament to the charisma of this individual that his his successors, his sons and others will, will pursue it. You know, particularly in Iran or Persia, you know, the, the shattering of the Khwarezm Shahs 
yes, it, it doesn't mean that there's a that the Mongols are in control of it, but it's a vacuum. It's a political vacuum yeah. in a sense for for several decades until the Mongols then do come and take over um, in a more systematic way. But you're right. I mean, I think for me, it's the Mongol Empire is 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 extraordinary case study i mean obviously viewed from afar um you know a case study that is um shows the power uh the you know the extraordinary power of nomadic nomadic peoples um well organized with a charismatic leader politically able obviously uh but with a charismatic leader and how they can sort of basically express that power it it, it it's it's a real sort of rebuttal in a sense to our standard notions of civilization if i may put it that way and yeah. you know urban centers and this sort of thing. um it, it you know it's the largest contiguous land empire in history i mean it, it, it's 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 yeah. almost beyond comprehension in some ways. That's, it doesn't um, last very long. I mean, the fact that it doesn't last very long ultimately is a sign that its institutional basis is obviously quite yeah. is much weaker. Let's go back to Genghis Khan, just finish him off. Sure. So there are different versions of his death. Um, I'm just trying to work out how old he was. So he is... Quite old, isn't he? He's about, yeah, he's late 60s, probably. I thought he was 70s or so. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, early yeah, 70s. Yeah, yeah. Some people say he falls off his horse while hunting. Yeah. Some people say he's been hit by an arrow, an affected wound. And there's even a story that he's been stabbed by one of his wives or concubines or something, a princess that he's... Tries to, to castrate him. Yes. It's, it's um, one of the stories. Uh, great favourite of yours, of course, Tom. Yeah. Um, <laughs> him into a eunuch. Um, so, so Ali... I mean, basically, we just don't know. Is that, is that we the, don't know? We we don't know. We know. I mean, the arguments obviously about his. I mean, this is one of the great, you know, for the um, Indiana Joneses of the world, you know, is to try and find where the hell his tomb is, um, where his burial site is. Uh, he wants no sign. I mean, basically, his request is, I don't want to. You know, nobody should know yeah. where I am. Uh, and of course, you know, the and I think it's in the. I don't know which film it's in. I think it's in the Omar Sharif film actually, rather than the John Wayne film. You know, the scene of the the sort of the the funeral cortege going and anything that crosses the path of the funeral cortege is slaughtered you know so that they won't beast, give away the animal location. you know animal yeah. human whatever so that nobody can bear witness to where but that are. must be that can't be true <laughs> well i mean the truth the, the only the only the only thing is it is true is we don't know where he's buried it'd be demented <laughs> yeah. to have people chasing after a stoat or something to try and kill it because <laughs> i mean you, you'd sort of think i mean this is the thing with archaeology that with aerial record you know sort of the area you might sort of see where the land has been disturbed or whatever but it is interesting that there's just absolutely we don't really know i mean we just i was reading about this i don't know whether this is true that um there's there's a, a kind of holy mountain really that's very associated with right. with his with Genghis khan's life and death and it is widely thought that he was buried on the sunny side the sunny slope of this mountain and that um expeditions keep not digging there. Oh, right. Uh, and the implication is, is that quite a lot of these expeditions that are kind of sent by Chinese or Japanese companies are actually prospecting. You know, they're kind of, they're looking for minerals or whatever. And that there's a kind of agreement with the Mongolian authorities that they won't desecrate um, the likeliest place where he's, he's, uh, he's lying. Because, of course, uh, Genghis Khan now in Mongolia is, I mean, he's almost, dare I say, a sacral figure. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I mean, he's, he's, the, father, he's, he's the father of he's, the nation. Well, but more than that, I mean, he's a, he's a religious figure. Yeah. He's he's seen as someone who is a kind of interface between the divine and 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 the mortal. Um, so has, has this incredible uh, kind of um, resonance. I mean, there's a wonderful from Matt Yuki who <laughs> said in Ulaanbaatar, I sat in the Genghis Khan pub on Genghis Khan Street, eating a Genghis Khan burger and drinking Genghis Khan vodka. And of course, I mean, <laughs> so, this is the thing. The, the thing is, he was a teetotaler. I mean, he didn't drink. The Mongols drank heavily. 
I mean, they drank this, you know, uh, was it uh, kind of fermented mare's, mare's milk, milk fer- yeah. fermented mare's milk, which is, I mean, it's called Arach, which every sort of like vodka that we have in Central Asia is called Arach, but they, they, Kumis, I mean, basically. But uh, interestingly, Genghis Khan himself was a teetotaler. Kublai Khan and the others, on the other hand, drank heavily. I mean, heavily. Ogaday was a fat, massive drunk. I mean, they, no, I mean, all the Ilkhanate, uh, interestingly, in Iran basically were alcoholics. I mean, it, it was that bad. Uh, but uh, I, I think the, the Mongol. Mongolian government brought out a vodka, you know, called, you know, Genghis Khan vodka or something. And someone pointed out that actually, I mean, since he never drank, that's wholly inappropriate. Um, but, you know, they want to make the most, obviously, yeah, of the of legacy. Course. And there have been some other films that have been made and whatever that uh, obviously look at his rise and, and slightly, you know. Uh, and how should we remember him, Ali? Should we, hmm? I mean, how should we remember him? I mean, is he a figure of fable? Is he a historical figure? I mean, he obviously is a historical figure, but so much of what we think we know about him is a bit. Is, a bit, yeah. is on uncertain foundations. But also, we in the 21st century are much more, I mean, by and large, we, we're, much, we're much slower to embrace great men of history mm. um, who have piled up pyramids of skulls than, than our predecessors would have been. So do you think, I mean, is it right that we remember him as this dreadful monster? Or do you think actually that's orientalizing and we're projecting a sort of you know, this sort of idea of the Easter savage and all that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you have to just see him as a figure of his time, you know, in the sense of, but without, you know, sanitizing the whole thing and sort of trying to say that somehow he was a, you know, uh, eco-warrior of some sort or, or you know, well, it wasn't quite so yeah. bad and this sort of thing. I mean, it it's certainly true that I think some of the tropes about the Mongols, the Horde being one of them, by the way, uh, and also the sort of indiscriminate violence, it wasn't actually indiscriminate violence, but it was violent. Targeted. Yeah, it was targeted, yeah. but it was violent. I mean, you know, if you rebelled, that was it. And 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 they they struck terror. I mean, their their use of terror was extremely sophisticated, if I can put it that way. So um I think the whole experience, and I teach the Mongol Empire and stuff like you know, I always use the Mongol Empire as, as an ex, as an excellent case study of, you know, what nomadic peoples can do. I mean, it, with charisma, with limited mm-hmm. institutions, with, you know, it, it's almost antithetical to our understanding of what an empire should be. And yet it was, you know, uh, the most extensive empire that in, in territorial terms, certainly, that the continuous land empire, certainly, that we've seen. Um, but it's also, I mean, it's interesting because of all, the whole discussion on empire, of course. People are much more uh, comfortable in talking about the Mongol Empire, if I can put it that way, than they may be of other empires. <laughs> But the Mongol Empire is it. You know, the Mongol Empire is really what everyone reacts against. Just to end this with three fields. Uh, three of, fields. Three. Tom, <laughs> three mighty fields. <laughs> three fields of science. And I can ah, see Dominic's okay, happy yeah. face light up. That um, obviously there's so much that, that we don't know about the early years of, uh, of Genghis Khan and about the growth of the Mongol Empire and all that kind of thing. But that scientists have um, kind of shed light on three distinct areas. And one of them is a question that millions of people on the Discord and on Twitter asked. Uh, so Oliver Mason is representative. Is it true that an enormous proportion of people currently alive share his DNA about one in 10? I don't know. I mean, if that's you know interesting. I mean, that's that, actually, I've heard that. I, I've heard that. Okay. Actually. Well, yeah. so I asked uh, Adam Rutherford, very distinguished scientist, uh, knows all about this stuff. Uh, and he, and, and, uh, how, so I said, you know, how many of us are related to Genghis Khan? He said, not properly accounted for, but the answer is in the millions. He's long enough ago and had so many children that he acts as a near ISO point like Charlemagne. Yeah. Uh, mm. So, um, and then he, he's, 
he, he's talking about the ISO point for Europe being around at 1000 AD, which means anyone who has living descendants from that time or earlier is the ancestor of all Europeans. And this always kind of makes my head explode. I know, it does. But anyone who lived in 1000 AD is your ancestor. I calculate that the chances that Edward III is not the ancestor of anyone today with British ancestry is 10 to the power of minus 21. So, so basically, yes, uh, everyone in Eurasia is descended from Genghis Khan, as I understand that. But I mean, that doesn't mean anything. It just means that we're descended from everybody who lived then. Dominic. Sorry, Tom, I don't want to I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then, Ali, this was the other one that you pointed out to me, <laughs> which is, uh, and you mentioned it just briefly back then, Genghis Khan as eco-warrior. Yeah. So do you want to just tease that? Well, that there, there's been this... Again, you know, the, the question is, is was he a conscious eco-warrior or not? I mean, there, there are some people that sort of say, well, you know, his uh, his demolition of cities and stuff was great for CO2 output and this sort of thing. I mean, the, uh, <laughs> it's, a, again, it's a robust policy. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, and, you know, returning to nomadic ways of life is, is, is rather good. Um, Extinction Rebellion. So yes. So. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, again, I, I think this is you know, wholly... Uh, far-fetched and, and quite unreal. I mean, it, it's it's not something that would have crossed his mind. Um, and uh, but it's interesting that people try and you know. Tr- well, I don't he, know why he, that they're determined to you know obviously to find something positive to say. Um, but you know, I think there's well, huge amounts. Of, not, there's huge amounts of interesting things to say about Genghis Khan and the Mongols. I mean, I, I think they're fascinating. But eco warrior environmentalism isn't one of them. <laughs> so just to be fair, yeah. and I'm reading the. The study that you sent me, it's, it's from the Carnegie Institution yes. Department of Global Energy, came yeah. out in 2011. Yeah. Um, and it concluded that Genghis Khan single-handedly scrubbed 700 million tonnes of carbon from the atmosphere. I know, exactly. I mean, it's brilliant. So, but I mean, I, I can see he was calculating that as he was doing it. So just to put that in perspective, that's about the quantity of carbon dioxide generated in a year through petrol. Wow. Through wow. petrol consumption. Okay, and then there's the third one, which I think is is, which is really probably interesting. the most interesting in some ways. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. Wh- which is this idea that the Mongols played the key role in what became the Black Death. Yeah, in Europe through and the marmot, the th- as you said. Yeah, through the marmot. So um, attentive listeners may remember that we mentioned how Timogen, when he was on his uppers, was um, eating mar- reduced to eating marmots, and marmots are a kind of rodent, aren't they? That's right. That inhabits the steppe, um, and they're a kind of snack. <laughs> <laughs> and they and 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 uh, and they use the skins. So the Mongols use the skins. So they would have carried these unfortunate little rodents as snacks or as furs or whatever with them as they spread. And it's turned out that there are four distinct strains of bubonic plague, all of which follow their, their growth follows the track lines of four different directions yeah it's fascinating actually. armies yeah, yeah. so that's that's the thesis presented by um uh, argued by monica green who's a professor of history i think at Ari- and basically University because of the, the speed at which they expanded into different areas you know they carried this sort of the the virus with them i mean the inter- the only question i have on that uh, uh hypothesis in a sense is 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 to what extent the mongols themselves were vulnerable to this sort of uh, uh to this virus you know to the to the plague themselves and uh Again, yeah. I don't know. I don't know actually the answer to that, really, in a sense. But it seems to be that where they where they immune themselves and simply, you know, carrying these these um, <laughs> these that seems uh, implausible to me. Marmot, yeah, marmot know. skins, you know, with yeah. them across across the. I world. mean, it is a, it is a kind of interesting answer to the, the puzzle of why the bubonic plague seems not to have affected um, India. India, yeah, that the, yeah. the Mongols never attacked India. So, I mean, it's a it's it's a great thesis and suggests that perhaps there are, um, you know, I mean, it opens up a whole avenue. I mean, the main inquiry. the main eco Sort of argument really is uh, that is, has gained traction is this idea that 
you know, what was it that encouraged the Mongols to go out, you know, to basically expand? And one of those, as we discussed, is obviously Genghis Khan's, um, you know, his, mo- his political motivations. But the other was that basically there was a sort of a warming of the climate, which allowed uh, for the Mongols to breed much more horses, or to sustain m- many more horses on the plain, on the steppes. But that what that meant also was they needed to basically expand outwards that, you know, they had a lot more capacity for warfare in a sense, in that sense, because they had, you know, each Mongol warrior goes, uh, the argument was uh, they had five horses. So they traveled with five horses. So when when some of the figures for Mongol hordes are so vast, and some people say that reflects the fact that they're counting every horse, you know. So you know, if 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 you think that Genghis Khan invaded Khorasan with a hundred thousand men, I mean, you're talking about then five hundred thousand. I mean, it's huge actually when you think about it I yeah. mean, in terms of logistics. Right. We should return, shouldn't we, to the issue of the later Mongols and the creation of the Mongol empire yeah the empire broadly, and the attack on europe i mean because that is an absolutely fascinating subject and it's the great i mean we've talked so much about what ifs in history and of course that is one of the great what ifs isn't it what if the mongols had kept going or maybe they couldn't have kept going well we can discuss that another time ali don't don't answer that question because <laughs> um, we'll be here for hours and tom will just try to drag science back into it in some way and um, and i'll fall asleep again <laughs> right um <laughs> Oh, come on, Dominic. That's really interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Into the Black Death. It doesn't get more interesting than that. You know I love a scientific chat, Tom. I do, I do. <laughs> um, right. Ali, thank you so much. That was thank brilliant. You. Really enjoyed I it. A, uh, a stiff drink of fermented mare's milk? My, yeah, I want to do a shout out to my students in St. Andrews, Dom. Oh, Tell well, we're always happy. Listening. I'm a former St. Andrews student myself, exactly. Ali. So we're yeah. always happy to have <laughs> St. Andrews students listening. They join the students of King Edward's Birmingham, Gerard exactly. Hawkins' alma mater. If you have a school that you would like to have mentioned on the rest is history, our fees are very moderate. <laughs> and, uh, please, yes, tweet uh, our producers, and they will be happy to discuss the bank transfer details. <laughs> so on that bombshell... Uh, we say thank you to Ali, and we'll see you thank all you. next time. Goodbye. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com dot com.